You love me, right? As much as I love you? Well, whatever platform you're listening to Drinks with Tony on, could you do me a huge favor and rate it? It only takes a minute. See, we have our relationship, but, but other people who don't know us well, well, they need to know about our relationship. Essentially, look, I know it's a twisted world out there in this cyberspace, and I wish, I really wish we can keep this between us, this podcast monogamy of sorts. And we can. It, it's me and you. But we also need the world out there. And you're, you're always in my heart. I just want to be in more people's ears. So rate Drinks with Tony and we can share our love for each other to everyone. Also check out TonyDuchesne.com for upcoming workshops on the UCLA campus at Los Feliz Library Branch in Los Angeles and online, TonyDuchesne.com. What? Want to watch a film I wrote? Well, great. Eric Stoltz directed it. It's called Confessions of a Teenage Jesus Jerk, and it's on Amazon Prime right now. But first and foremost, it's about our love. And as always, enjoy the show. Hi, this is Charlie Jane Anders, and you're listening to Drinks with Tony. Awesome. Get on the Drinks with Tony show. Yeah, yeah. So, all right, you're listening to Drinks with Tony. I'm your host, Tony Duchesne. Today on the show, we have Charlie Jane Anders, her latest book, The City in the Middle of the Night. How are you doing, Charlie? I'm doing great. It's so good to be here. I'm super excited to be in L.A. I love this town. It's good to see you. You know, this is awesome. I'm really excited. When's the last time you were in L.A.? Um, a few months ago, I guess. You know, it's been a little while. So you get down here pretty, pretty often. It's I, so I'll go for a year or two without getting down here, but then I'll just get down a bunch. It's like really random. I think the last time I saw you was at um, Festival of Books, or probably one of those parties, or maybe in San Francisco. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I let me let me quiz you on the last time we saw each other. I don't know. There was some gallery thing that was like a party or something where we hung out. That was a couple of years ago. I am, I think, and I'm going to be at the LA Times Festival Festival of Books this year, just on Sunday. I'm coming down on Sunday, doing a thing, and then going back, not even staying. Oh, great! So you'll be on panel? Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Love the Festival of Books. It's every year. It's just fantastic. Um, and you're like right in the middle of book tour. You just got off the plane at LAX, landed here. You're doing a reading tonight. What's it like being on book tour in this like capacity? It's super fun. It's really exciting. I'm getting to like see a lot of people I haven't seen in ages. I'm really stoked. A lot of people have been coming out. It's been really fun. It's just sort of like being a touring musician, except, you know, that uh, you just talk instead of playing music. But you just, you load in, you load out, you do your show, and then you go to the next thing. And you just kind of try to, like, project a lot of energy and then go crash, kind of. It's fun, though. But, you know, book people are the best. Book people are great. They ask great questions. They're really just, like, fun to hang out with. They love books. Like, you know, that's the thing is that, you know, even if they haven't read my books, they love books and they have like, we have that shared kind of like, there's always something that they're, they've read that I've read or there's some shared frame of reference. And it's just really great hanging out with that, that, those kinds, that crowd kind of, you know. Totally. I, I, I feel like the only weirdos I can like feel okay with are authors and other book fans. Yeah, and, like, and like super serious readers, people who read like all the time. Like those people are the best. I love those people. They're awesome. All right. And uh, your book, The City in the Middle of the Night. So I haven't, I haven't finished it, but I got a good chunk of the way through it. 
and it just it's blowing my mind one one the, one conceptually just how you created the world but just how 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 strong the characters are and how totally whole, totally invested I am because I usually don't read this uh, like you know kind of uh, what is it fan, what do they call the, no wait let me let me get the I'll get the uh, I'll get the pub, publicist entertaining speculative fiction set on a distant planet yeah I mean well that's really nice to hear thank you so much I really appreciate it and that's that means a lot to me I really appreciate it and you know it's been it's been really just exciting to have this thing that I've been working on for years out in the world and now people are talking about it and people are arguing about it and people are mad at me about some of the stuff that happens in the book and like you know it's it's exciting it's great to have like something that just was like my own little private weird imaginary thing like now suddenly it's out there and people are you know talking about it. people are getting mad about your book how the hell does that happen this book is great well, thanks. I mean, I feel like that always happens a little bit. I mean, it always happens if you do your job right, kind of, because if people care about the characters and then something bad happens to one of the characters, okay. people will come up to you and be like, why did you have that thing happen to this character? I love this character and this bad thing happened to them. And like, you know, it happened to me with all the birds in the sky, too. Like, okay. there was stuff that I really didn't expect people to have this strong reaction to in the first book that I published a few years ago. And then people were just really, really upset about certain things that happened in the book that were just, you know, they they were... The, I mean, I feel like my job is to torture the characters. And, you know, it's kind of like... It's one of those things where, like, if you're torturing an actual person, you can't torture them too much or they'll, like, pass out or something. Or, you know, and I feel like as an author, you have to torture your characters just enough so that you kind of feel that they're, they're struggling and suffering and stuff. But not so much that people just are like, well, screw this. This is just like torture porn or it's, you know, I, I could just read Game of Thrones or whatever. I could just read George R. R. Martin if I wanted this level of, of sadism or whatever. And, you know, and obviously George R. R. Martin gets away with it, but, you know, he's George R. R. Martin and he has like a very different fan base than I do. Um, much larger and more enthusiastic and also different. Um, but, um, but, yeah, so I feel like, you know, I've definitely had people, not a lot, but a couple, be like, oh my god, I'm really upset about what happened to this one character. And like, you know, and that happened with the first book too. I think that it's just, it's one of those things that I never, maybe one of these, maybe eventually after a few more books, I'll kind of have a sense for what's going to push people's buttons. But I feel like I always obsess about what's going to freak people out about a book and I'm never right. Like the thing that I think is going to upset people is never what upsets them. And it's always something that I never saw coming. So it's weird. That's funny. Okay, so I didn't realize that they were upset that the characters like are being hurt and died off. That's like an, uh, that's an amazing thing to be upset about. I thought maybe they were upset about certain rules in the world or something. But the way you create the world is just—it's almost majestic. I could never write like this, which just blows. But that's why I just—I feel like it's a when I read, especially the um, there's only like two safe cities in this right. book, and it's just the the whole concept is. It just it blows my mind because it almost scares me because I think this is the future. She's right. I mean, it's not meant to be like the future. It's not meant to be like you know an actual prediction of what's gonna really what where we're gonna be living or what we're gonna be doing or whatever. It's more like just um, this is what things might look like. This is how things could be, and um, you know, it's more like kind of a, a way of imagining a possible future that kind of lets us deal with 
where we're at now. And it's, you know, everybody always says that science fiction is never really about the future. It's always about the time when it was written. And I think that that's definitely true with this book. But at the same time, I was thinking a lot about, like, we want to colonize other planets. We want to colonize planets outside the solar system. If we did, this is kind of a little taste of what it might look like. And that was the thing that I was kind of trying to, like, grapple with a little bit, you know? Very cool. All right, and I have to say that you have the best reading series. I'm just going to sit here and gush out for about the next event. Writers with Drinks, if, if people don't know Writers with Drinks, it's the only reading series. If you only go to one in San Francisco, it's Writers with Drinks. I have never had more fun reading there or being an audience member. How long have you been doing Writers with Drinks? Uh, I almost don't want to say because it's like dating myself, but I mean, the first one... I've been dating myself for about four years in L.A. and No one has me, so... <laughs> so, uh, I mean, the first one was like kind of... It was April 1st, 2001. We called it April Fool's Paradise. And then it became kind of officially Writers with Drinks and got the name and became a monthly event. January 20, uh, January 2002. So it's been going pretty much steadily since January 2002. And it's gone through some changes. For a while, it was happening on the East Coast as well as the West Coast. And that was a little too much to handle. But it's kind of gone through a bunch of stuff. But it's been pretty much a steady thing since, like, for the last, like, I want to say, like, 17 years. Which is crazy. Yeah. When you host it, I mean... You come up with the greatest um, introductions and uh, the segues. I mean, do those just come off the top of your head while you're doing the show, or do you have do you kind of prep some of that stuff? Because it really feels like it's just coming off the top of your head when you're on the stage. Yeah, thanks. I mean, there's a lot of improv in the show. There's a lot of like, it's just you know. I mean, I try to kind of keep it fun and lively, and like especially if I have people coming and reading stuff that's really heavy and dark and depressing, I kind of try to break it up a little bit by just being kind of goofy in between authors, and also just kind of, you know, get away from the solemnity of just like reciting someone's accomplishments and then bringing them on stage, although I do celebrate their accomplishments as well. I'm like, these are all the awesome things this person's accomplished, and also, here's some weird stuff that I made up about them. And like, you know, it used to be just 100% improv on the spot with like maybe a little bit of like just coming up with a little idea beforehand but um, over the course of the last like several years I've kind of transitioned more to um, I kind of come up with a little bit more in advance because I want to think about why this person is awesome why I wanted to have them come read why why you know why I was excited about having them hearing them read and what's cool about them and kind of turn that sideways and fictionalize it and that takes a little bit more thought and also I just don't want to screw up and accidentally say something that's going to hurt someone's feelings or whatever if I'm making up fake stuff about people and I don't want it to feel too samey I want it to be kind of fresh and different every time and so there's a little bit more like I feel like the longer I do it the more I kind of have to put some thought into it beforehand to keep it from just getting kind of boring I guess you know to keep it kind of keep it fresh I would say so when you started the series, okay, oh yeah, we have a connection that I don't think you know about. So that way back when you were writing for the same, uh, the Bay Guardian, oh, yeah. you did a piece on uh, literary readings or something, and, and this was like 2004, and I was doing stand-up comedy at the time, so I did, I was doing stand-up at a reading event that someone booked me at, and so when you wrote that piece, I had my photo in there as part of the piece which I have to say was the first publicity I ever received, and I still have it, and it, it's, um, 
And I, and I, I when that came out, I was walking down. I was in Bernal Heights. I was walking down Cortland. I was like, "Hey, have you read the latest issue of the Bay Guardian?" And people be like, "What?" I'm like, "Look at page 64." And they'd be like, "That's you." And I'm like, "I know." So that my whole my whole week was me just bugging the shit out of people over the article you wrote. But um, now so that 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 I don't think we had met before that point, and then later we met. I don't know if you even knew that that connection was. I'm not sure if I did. I think I, I mean, I definitely had seen you perform because I remember that. And like, so I basically, what you're saying is that you owe your entire career to me. Yes, exactly. And th- that was the best day of my life. It hasn't gotten any better since. And I just keep holding on to that. Aw, I'm really glad to hear that. I mean, you know, that was, I mean, I, I loved being able to shine a light on stuff that was just happening in San Francisco. And yeah. the Bay Guardian was such an amazing paper. I'm glad that it kind of lives on a little bit in like, 46 Hill, 49 Hills, I guess it's called. I don't know. 48 Hills, 48 Hills, which is run by the former published editor, former editor of the Bay Guardian, right. Tim Redmond. There's a blog now, but um, yeah, I mean, I miss, I miss that paper. I miss being able to just write about local shit really yeah. intensely. And like, I feel like we've lost a lot of that stuff. Like there's, there's blogs, there's stuff, yeah. but you know, the Bay Guardian used to really just like raise hell and like be muckraking and like go sit in city hall and like just write on write down everything that all the weird shit that people were doing they'd sit in all the meetings and like cover all of the like underhanded deals and you know i guess 48 hills does some of that but it's still you know i miss those independent papers that we used to have how long did you write were you an employee of the bay guardian as well or were you freelance i was strictly freelance um my so I was writing for the Bay Guardian um, on and off, I want to say from like 99, 2000 through to probably around the time that that article appeared, 2004, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 2005. Oh, I was, I was the, I was, you were almost, I was at the end of your time there, almost. I mean, I guess so. I'm trying to remember, like, I'm trying to remember what, when the Bay Guardian kind of, you know, first they downsized massively. First they got bought. I can't remember. They downsized a lot. They got bought. And then they kind of, uh, they kind of just ceased to exist at some point but I feel like my association with them kind of started coming to an end in definitely the mid-2000s I was reviewing books for them I was doing a lot of like just local arts coverage and occasionally writing other just random stuff and it was it was really fun and then uh, so along with you along with writing fiction when did when were you writing fiction were you writing fiction as you were also doing uh, coverage at, at the time yeah, I've been doing fiction now for, I mean, it's, again, dating myself. I've been writing fiction in some capacity for about 20 years now. And, like, just scratching at the door, like, you know, trying to get in, trying to, like, trying to break in somehow. And it took, you know, from whatever, 20 years ago until probably 2011-ish was when I first kind of had something published that really kind of got a lot of attention. And, like, I had stuff in anthologies before that. I had stuff in some you know, reasonably, you know, decent, like, well-known publications, but nothing that really got noticed until, like, I would say 2011-ish. That was when I had that story that kind of won an award and got, like, some notice and stuff. The story was called Six Months, Three Days, and it was published in Tor.com, and I'm still super grateful to them that they kind of took a chance on me, and it ended up winning the Hugo Award. So that was kind of like I was catapulted out of obscurity as a fiction writer in 2011-ish, 2012-ish. And then, and then, okay, and then let's also talk about I, is it IO9? Am I, yeah, so, I, 
So, like, when I read that, I don't feel like a smart person. Um, <laughs> it's, 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 well, it's, you, you and uh, Annalie, yeah. you and Annalie just, I feel like you, you go into deep things, which I find intriguing and I wish I knew more about, but I, that's, I always loved reading it. Yeah, well, it makes me sad to hear that you don't feel smart reading io9. I mean, our it doesn't mean that you're not uh, that you're that you're playing down to your audience. It's just I I'm not, I I need to be brought into the science fiction world a little more gracefully. That's it's not on you at all. No, but I mean, so I haven't I have not been involved with io9 for about th- almost three years now. Uh, but when we were running it, which was you know I was involved with it for like eight and a half ish years, and when we were running it. We had a really strong ethos of our having in the back of our mind that our readers were not like experts on science fiction. That we were, that you know, if we were. So I totally just blew your formula. That, well, that, I mean, we really, we really tried, and we would assume we might assume that you would know like who Superman is, or that you might know what Star Trek is, or whatever. We wouldn't we wouldn't necessarily be like Star Trek, which is you know. So you were consciously trying to keep it to its accessibility, but then at the same time. I, I wasn't accessing it, so <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm burying myself here. Don't worry. No, I mean we we really thought about that a lot, and we would argue about that. And I would I would go into people's articles and be like, "Look, you're assuming people know this stuff, and you can't assume that." And like, you know, it's easy to just kind of introduce the topic in a way that for people who already know the topic, they're not going to notice. But people who don't know the topic are going to be like, okay, so I know what this is now. And like, that was the thing that we really, really, really consciously tried to do and that we would talk about every day. And like, you know, because we weren't for the fans, we weren't for like the diehard, you know, expert, like sci-fi cognoscenti or whatever. We were, we were for everybody who likes Star Wars and the X-Men and, you know, Superman and Batman. And like, that was our audience. And we, you know, because we wanted to, we wanted to reach a big audience. We wanted to be read by a lot of people. And we wanted to kind of, you know, we wanted to make everybody feel like they could be part of this. And, like, it's not like an in-group thing. It's not something that you have to, like, hang out in a comic book store or whatever to be a part of. Anybody can, can love this stuff. And that was a big thing that we, we talked about constantly. And so, you know, I mean, obviously it's been a long time since I was involved. But we always, like, we thought really hard about how to try to, Within, you know, the bounds of, like, certain things we assume everybody knows, we try to kind of make it accessible to everybody. And the science, too. I think the science, we tried to really keep it so that, you know, we were kind of bringing science to a really broad audience. Right. Which, um, when you bring up, like, Batman and Superman, I, w- I never really got into all of that stuff. So that's why uh, oh, yeah. I was probably a little more out of the loop. Um, but when I read science fiction, when it has a great story base, you know, when there's a great character and the character is conflict, then I'm then I'm in. Uh, it's that's when I'm totally in. Yeah, I mean, like to bring up someone that you and I both know who is here in LA, uh, Bucky Sinister published a novel called Black Hole a couple years ago, two or three years ago, and that's a great example of something that I feel like it's science fiction. It's about time travel. It's about this weird drug that makes you kind of time travel. It's very kind of influenced by Philip K. Dick, who's a science fiction writer. It's also kind of like in Bucky's kind of unique style. It's like literary. It's kind of punk. It's very kind of messed up and fucked up and weird and and psycho. And, you know, at one point there's a guy covered entirely in poo, uh, which is like, you know, whenever I whenever I heard Bucky read from it, he always read that section. 
he was just like, I'm going to read the guy covered in poo section of this book. And it's, you know, it's not, it's not what I would call necessarily a mainstream book, because mainstream books don't usually have a guy covered in poo in them. But um, it is a book that you don't have to have uh, been a huge sci-fi fan to appreciate. And it's something that I feel like, you know, I don't know, just that popped into my head because I think you and I have been in the same place as Bucky many times. And uh, that's an example of something that I feel like, you know, I want to like, that, that I want to claim that for part of like sci-fi and part of our, our community. That's um, A Man Covered in Poo, Poo is the name of my memoir coming out, I think. <laughs> you know, it's a catchy title. You know, I don't know why Bucky didn't use it. I mean, he could have. You know? Yeah, it's... um. It's so funny, you know. So we we got me from the Bay Area. We got Bucky down here. What's it What's it like up there when when you lose people like us in San Francisco? I mean, it's it's sad. We're, we miss you. We miss Bucky. We miss Michelle T, who's also moved down to here to LA, and we miss we miss all of you. And uh, you know, a lot of people have left. Are you mad at us in any way? No, no, I'm not mad. I mean, it's all good. I, I understand. I mean, San Francisco is changing. It's changing. It's you know, um, we're kind of fighting to keep it San Francisco right now. I feel like, you know, the Center for Sex and Culture, literally, I think just a few days ago, lost its physical space and had to close its physical location, which is something that makes me really sad because that was uh, that was a space that you could go and see erotic art and hear people writing and reading about erotica. And there was, like, if you were an amateur erotica writer, you could come and, like, hang out and learn to write erotica. And, like, it was, like, a space for, you know, it was a very San Francisco kind of space. And I did everything in my power to kind of support it, you know, and so did a lot of people. And, you know, the rent just, like, kept doubling and doubling. And it was just, it sucked. And so, you know, eventually it had to close. And that is kind of San Francisco. On the other hand, we still have Wicked Grounds, which is an amazing space. And, you know, we're all, again, we're all trying to support it as much as we can. And that's like a kind of BDSM-themed cafe that, you know, not a lot of cities have those. And it's, a, it's always full of amazing, queer, awesome people. Uh, we have, you know, there's a lot of great spaces left in San Francisco that I love and support. And, you know, part of why I keep doing Writers with Drinks is because I feel like it's a bridge to the San Francisco that I fell in love with 20 years ago. And uh, so I want to keep kind of keep that, you know, for people who are new to San Francisco. But there are, you know, I always meet queer people who have just moved to San Francisco like five minutes ago or moved to the Bay Area. A lot of them are in the East Bay. You know, there's queer people showing up all the time. There's artists. There's still people showing up. And it's not, I don't think it's a lost cause. I think that, you know, I think that there's still a lot of what I love about it left. But, you know, Robin Sloan, who wrote Mr. Penumbra's 24-hour bookstore and uh, Sourdough, I saw him being interviewed recently at actually Annalene Newitz's event, uh, Ars Technica Live. And he was saying that San Francisco has always had what he called a two-stroke engine, where you've got, like, geek culture and like techie culture on the one side and then alternative culture and like hippies and queers and like creative people and like artists on the other side and they've always kind of fed into each other and it's always kind of like been this engine that just generates great things and you know there's always been a lot of crossover like a lot of early geek heroes were also kind of hippies or artists or weirdos and what's happening now is that finally one is getting so strong that the other is not able to continue and it kind of throws everything out of balance. And that's how Robin Sloan put it. And he's someone who, you know, he, he appreciates a lot of stuff about geek culture and tech and everything. But he just feels like we're not making enough space for artists and 
you know, queers and, and people who don't necessarily have like VC, you know, angel investor, you know, seed capital behind them. <laughs> do you think, I mean, do you think at some point there's going to be a balancing where people will be like, wait a second, we, we've kind of lost why we, why we came here. Let's, let's, let's put more into this. I, I, I just, I have hope, I guess, is what I have. Not you, not necessarily in humanity, but in San Francisco. <laughs> I mean, I think that eventually things will change. Things always do change, you know. And um, the one ironclad rule of economics supposedly is that if something cannot go on forever, it won't. Like, and you know, things eventually stop. And I think that eventually there will be, there'll, there'll something will happen. And you know, San Francisco. Like one of the articles I wrote for the Bay Guardian uh, back when I was writing for the Bay Guardian was called Suck Francisco. And it was basically about the idea that whenever you move to San Francisco, if you move to San Francisco in 1990 or 2000 or 2010, people will be telling you, San Francisco sucks now, but it used to be awesome. And that's just like, people always say that no matter when you show up. And so, and it's always changed and it's always been a city that's been in flux. And I think that, you know, at some point there will be another iteration in San Francisco and maybe It'll be one that's like more artist friendly and more kind of all, you know, maybe things will kind of chill out a little bit. And for one reason or the other, there won't be quite as much just like money sloshing around everywhere. And uh, it's going to happen. I don't know how long it's going to take or what's going to cause it. But it's I I don't believe that it's going to just stay like this forever. Well, and, you, and you brought up a really good point because I remember as a kid going to my parent, my grandparents' house in Noe Valley, and you know they were just like working class, and they would they were just like, oh man, all these goddamn yuppies are coming into our neighborhood, and so I I've heard it over and over through all the generations as well. I feel like even after the after the dot com, there, there there was it was just felt so rich for a while, um, like music wise, the, the, and like for two thousand three to two thousand seven. I was out like three nights a week, and there was always a new band to see. There was always, it was, there it was, there was, I don't know, there was just so much magic. Yeah, I mean, I, um, I, that was a really great time. It was a time when things were kind of a little bit more, you know, there wasn't quite as much of like a crazy money rush. But uh, yeah, I mean, fingers crossed, I guess. You know, I think the East Bay is, is where a lot of the better stuff is happening now, um, but obviously that means that more people are being displaced who've lived there for a long time, and, you know, so it's it's not, that's not a great thing in that way. Um, I think that, you know, um, I saw, who was it that I saw recently talking who was like, we need to stop using the term gentrification, and we need to start kind of talking about more about, like, resegregation, and, like, you know, I don't know, just think of it in terms of more just like, you know, people being pushed out and like displacement. Yeah. It's not, don't, that's, that's not center the rich in this conversation. Right, exactly. Yeah, it's like, a, yeah, it's, I think people who are mad at rich people, um, I, I'm not into that. I'm just into people like loving what they do and having a purpose. And if their purpose happens to make them a ton of money, that's awesome. But I just feel sad for people who are going after just the money part and not, and they're not, they don't have the passion for it. Because I got into the wrong gig if I wanted money. This like podcasting and writing is the like one of the worst things you can do to make a ton of money. Right? <laughs> as far as I can say. Yeah, I mean, a while ago I had two separate conversations with people who. I was not in San Francisco. I think one I was in D.C. and one I was in New York. And both times I was talking to someone who I was at some 
geek event or something and I met someone who was like in venture capital, hedge fundy type stuff. And they both said the exact same thing, which is, I love San Francisco, but there's too many people like me there now. Oh, really? <laughs> and they said that. I was like, I'm, you know, you said it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think. Do they love what they do or do, do you think they're in the money grab? They do. And these were both people who I think, like definitely one of them that I talked to for a while was mostly investing in medical stuff that's going to help people with disabilities and can help people with, you know, congenital illnesses. And there are things that you can invest in that are, you know, might make you money, but also are going to possibly help a lot of people. So, I mean, you know, we have a, a severely, I don't even want to say flawed, a severely fucked up uh capitalist system right now that I think has gone way too far towards um, you know enriching certain people at the expense of everybody else but yeah I mean I think what you said about if people love what they do and you know that's the rubric by which we should judge people I think that's a good way of looking at it I don't know I think that everybody should be I think you know Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is right we should just be taxing the shit out of them if they make a lot of money but anyway I'm going to get a little more water Hydrate from the flight. Yeah, no, also just talking. My throat oh, gets yeah. dyed. Where, where were you last night before coming to Los Angeles? I was in Austin. Oh, yeah? That was super fun. I love Austin. It's a great town. And how was how was the crowd at the reading? Um, It was good. All the seats were full, which oh, is great. like usually, yeah. it's, you know, that's, that's usually what I judge by. Plus, you know, I've that's been hap- pretty much every reading I've done yeah. on this tour. We've filled all the seats except for one where they put out, like, it was a kind of a, big space with like they had like a hundred chairs or something and we didn't fill all those but you know I was like okay whatever I'm gonna that's that's probably an unrealistic goal it was like in the middle of winter it was like snowing and but we we got a ton of people so it's been really good that is great I mean sometimes seven people show up to a reading and that's like actually really good and that's best-selling authors you never know yeah I mean my philosophy with book tours and you know I'm kind of glad that that phase of it is, is over my philosophy is basically you know, to promote the stops on this tour that I'm doing right now, I started in mid-December, and I just basically have been relentless for the last, like, kind of two-ish months about, like, bugging people and bugging people to make sure that people couldn't say, like, oh, I didn't know you were coming to my town, (laughs) you know? Just making sure that, like, if they wanted to know about it, they would know about it. And, like, you kind of have to be, especially in this day and age, because um, everybody's really distracted, Like, there's a lot of, like, apparatus out there trying to make us really distracted. And, you know, there's a lot of, like, there's a lot of companies that uh, are obsessed with engagement, which basically means that you don't pay attention to anything going on around you except for what's on Facebook or what's on Netflix or whatever. And so getting people to actually know about a thing that's happening in the physical world and want to actually leave their house and show up for it is, I think, that's kind of a miracle in 2019. Like, getting people to leave their freaking house is kind of like, you know, like you talked about going out three three nights a week to see bands and stuff. And I, I'm sure people still do that, but I feel like increasingly there's so many ways to just never leave your house. And, I, and psychologically, that's just not good for people. I think there's going to be a turning point where... They're, they're going to be like, wait a second, we need to get out. We need to find our people. We don't We don't have to tweet to a thousand. We need to talk to four. And that's like so much healthier and so much more fun. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to toot my own horn for a second. I organized, I, I helped organize this event called the Bookstore and Chocolate Crawl, which, um, 
you know, I, first I did it on my own, and that was like, it was a lot alongside writers with drinks and everything else I've got going on. So I, I managed to find a couple of incredibly super competent, smart, creative people, Maggie Tokoda Hall and Jackie Risley, to help me run it. And, and they're just doing the lion's share of the work now, and I, I love them and admire them. But so this is a thing where we've every each time we get about 100 people and you know we promote the hell out of it and we walk from bookstore to bookstore in san francisco and actually the next one's going to be in the east bay and uh we just walk from bookstore to bookstore we eat chocolate and people buy a ton of books and you can also buy books to donate to a nonprofit selected by the bookstore and they'll they'll ship your the books that you bought to that nonprofit for you and so it's a really fun event and like the the best part of it, the be- well, really the best part of it is supporting independent bookstores because they need our help right now. But also, the other best part of it is just the camaraderie and everybody just like, it's always like we do it on a Sunday. Everybody's just like super happy and chill. And we're all just like hanging out. We have, and Maggie makes these beautiful signs, which you can see them on my Instagram if you just scroll down. And um, it's just like this super fun, awesome time. And, um, yeah, and so the last one back in May, no, not May, September, I guess. January, January was the last one. We do it every four months. The last one was in January. And just afterwards, we were, it was a smaller group of people who hung out with us at a bar afterwards because people kind of peeled off towards the end. But we had like maybe 20, 25 people hanging out in a bar. And what I, the part that got me was that I could tell that people who had not known each other at the start of the day were friends now. And that there was like this, that we had helped to make people like we, it was like, this is sappy, but we had, it was, we would help to build a little bit more community. And there were these like queer, like trans, non-binary people hanging out who had made friends who were now like, you know, talking about going and doing something else together. And like the bar we were in happened to have like every Monday night. This is again, I love San Francisco. Even now the bar we were in, uh, Amnesia every Monday night has like a bluegrass jam. And people were like, I was telling them about it. And they were like, oh, my God, we're going to all go to the Bluegrass Jam. And, like, you know, we're going to come back tomorrow or a week from tomorrow. And, like, just but that sense of community and that sense of, like, people getting together in physical space and actually getting to know each other. And, like, I love doing that. And I love, like, building those because I just I think it's good if people, you know, meet people and, like, hang out. And, like, I think that that can be really it can be good politically as well as socially. And um Speaking of speaking of that, I hope someone's inspired who listens to this and goes, "Wait a second, we can do this in our town too." Because it would—that's just so fantastic. What, what what did it take to start that? I mean, it starts with an idea, and then what's and what's the next step if someone wanted to do something similar to that? Yeah. So the first time I did the bookstore and chocolate crawl, I did it really badly. Like I was doing it on my own, and I basically just came up with a map on my own of like. We're going to walk to all these bookstores. And I, I kind of had rough times of how long I thought it would take to get from bookstore to bookstore. And I, I did it conservatively. Like, I'm a really fast walker, so I kind of slowed it down. But still, it was way too ambitious. I was hitting too many bookstores. It was a kind of a death march. And the other thing was, um, I didn't tell the bookstores about it. And, you know, Maggie was like, no, you have to tell the bookstores that you're coming. So that they're prepared for, like, 100 people to show up. And I didn't. And actually, it was funny because, I mean, the one thing I did do the first time, which was several, it was like several years ago, but the one thing that I did do right was I promoted it 
really, really, really hardcore. So we got written up in Publishers Weekly, and we got written up in, like, I think one of the local papers in San Francisco. So people did kind of know about it, and we got a huge turnout. And we showed up at, I think it was Books Inc. in the Castro, which was still around at the time. We show up at Books Inc. in the Castro, and I didn't tell them we were coming. They didn't communicate with me at all. But we show up, and they've set up, like, a chocolate fountain and a bunch of, like, chocolate things to dip into the chocolate fountain for us. And I was like, oh, my God, you guys, that's awesome. And, like, it was just so nice that they just decided to do that on their own initiative because they knew we were coming. Um, so that was really cool. But um, if somebody was going to start it... In their, um, in their neighborhood, I would say, first of all, talk to the bookstores. Um, get them, and, you know, if you want to do what Maggie set up, where uh, Maggie Tokuda Hall, who, who runs that part of it, you know, suggests that maybe they have a nonprofit that they've selected. They have a table of books that they put out that uh, are for that nonprofit that you can buy one of those books and donate it, um, and they'll give it to the nonprofit for you. Um, but also just, you know, come up with, like, a really clear map that is achievable that an ordinary person, like no more than maybe two miles total probably, of like walking from bookstore to bookstore, make sure that there, if there's like a long walk between bookstores, make sure that there's a stop to just kind of stop and eat some chocolate on the way and like maybe supply some chocolate out of your own pocket. I think I spent like 20 bucks on chocolate last time. I just went and bought like some some cheap ass chocolate from like Target or whatever. And um, and just, you know, but, and then just promote it endlessly. Like, just make sure that everybody knows about it. Get it to, try to get it in the local paper or radio station. Try to get, like, you know, every Facebook group, every, like, everybody, every place that people are interested in books. And, you know, just promote it, like, twice as much as you think you might need to. And then, you know, fingers crossed. It helps if you live in a town where there's enough density that you could actually walk from bookstore to bookstore, which I don't know about L.A. I don't think L.A. really has that. No, I think think you'd have to set up kind of a book crawl in a van or shuttle or something. But what I really love about it is you went in and it was and you felt like it was a mistake the first time. And, you, and I think that's with everything. Um, you just go in, you don't know what you're doing, and then you learn. And then you just adjust. And I, I think people are so scared for that first dive in to these things. I, it may have been the same with like Writers With Drinks when you started that, that first one where it's just like you have no idea what's coming at you. And it's almost like precious because you're, if, if you did know, then you might not do it. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there were there were definitely, we're still kind of learning as we go with the bookstore and chocolate crawl. And with Writers with Drinks, there were definitely many mistakes along the way. There have been, there have been only a couple of really, like, what I would call disasters at Writers with Drinks, where something went really wrong. But I've learned stuff, like, for example, um, I would never book a comedian now without seeing them perform first. Like, that's just a super, like, hard, like, you know, um, because... You just you have to know what their what their what's that, what their sets like whether they're going to play with that audience like especially comedy more than anything else comedy if it doesn't work it's really bad and like you know if 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 it might work for like a kind of comedy club audience it doesn't necessarily work for writers with drinks and like because it's a very different crowd it's a it's a very kind of like there's a lot of queers a lot of like you know very politically. Um, you know, there's a lot of political people at Writers for Drinks in the audience. And some comedians just come in and, like, want to tell a bunch of fat jokes or whatever, or a bunch of, like, kind of slightly sexist jokes. And that is not going to fly at Writers for Drinks, and it's not going to work. And I've learned the hard way that 
from a you know there were a couple of times early on when I just like well this person sounds fun I'm just gonna book them sight unseen and now like the good news is that you know I used to go out to comedy shows all the time and that was exhausting but the good news is kind of contrary to what I said a minute ago about like leave your house get out do stuff um, any comedian who's been doing it for a while has at least one YouTube video or one video on like Facebook or something so if you want to check out a comedian and see if they're gonna like be horrible and offensive you don't have to leave your house to do that and you know I've definitely had mornings where I'm sitting there sipping my tea like my herbal tea in my bathrobe and I've watched like 20 comedians in a row and I'll be like watch a minute of this one and be like next watch a minute of this one next and like you know they'll never know thank god that like I just hit like next after a minute it's just they may they may be wonderful but they're not my taste or whatever and like you know and they're or they don't I don't think they're gonna play with my audience and so you know and it's great that I can just sit there and like watch 20 committee comedians in like half an hour in my bathrobe I gotta tell you like the one the one photo the, the my the big time when you made me big time that was a that was kind of a literary night I think Tourette's without regrets also performed and I bombed so hard it was the wrong audience for my set and at the same time it was such a huge club that it was just like people can like they were like I was like I felt like I was 50 feet away from the front people so I jumped into the um, the middle of the room and um, <laughs> it was just it was, it was like it was just funny it just was not a, it was not a it was it was not a, a great spot to be a comedian at that point but it, those are the best places to learn too because then you go oh okay so next time I'm in that, that big of an open space. I readjust. I do this. This, you know, this joke will come out. This, this you, 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 you curate your jokes in your head for the audience. Yeah, and I think over all the time I've been doing it, I don't always have comedians at Writers for Drinks, and you know, um, I haven't had one in a little while. I want to have more. There's one that I'm hopefully going to have soon. But oh, I would be scared to do stand up at Writers with Drinks because. I like the I like the reading and the storytelling part of it, and and doing the comedy is just like set up punchline, set up set up punchline, set up punchline, and it's almost like I wouldn't want to be in that situation. You have to be a really good comedian to come in and change the formula of of the vibe. You know? Yeah, I mean, I think over the time I've been doing it, I've gotten a really good sense of what comedians are going to work at writers for drinks and which ones aren't, and um, you know, I think the best comedians are kind of. A little bit storytellers, yes. you know. They're, it's actually when you put like a comedian next to like a poet, you kind of start to notice how a lot of what they're doing is kind of similar. Yeah. And like you have people like Bucky Sinister, we, who we talked about before, who go back and forth. It's so oh, funny. But, but, so I mean, when Bucky does, when I, the last time I saw him, which was in San Francisco, do an event at Twelve Galaxies, oh, yeah. he had the crowd enraptured and I think it was before a band came on and he had them in the palm of his hand and he was doing a story and I just sat there and went good for you Bucky Jesus I can never I've never been able to achieve what you just did he's he's phenomenal and I'm 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 jealous that LA has him now but I was gonna say that it's you know I have seen a lot of bad comedy in my time like one time hopefully this guy isn't gonna be listening to this podcast but one time I was at an open mic and this guy got up and did this whole routine about like how whenever he's having sex with his girlfriend he has to think about other women and how you know he's and what was funny about i mean what was his punchline so it was all about like how he it was just like kind of like 
it's observational humor. Yeah, whenever I'm having sex with my girlfriend, I have to think about other women. I'm not really attracted to my girlfriend anymore. And then he gets off stage, and the woman who's hosting the event gets on stage, and she's like, yeah, give up again for my boyfriend. And I'm like, my jaw dropped, and I was like, oh, my God. I don't want to, I, I kind of want to be a fly on the wall to see the two of you after this show, but I kind of wouldn't as well, because that's going to be a weird conversation. Do you think it really was his girlfriend? I think it was, yeah, because like she was like looking at him like, "Thanks, guy." <laughs> oh my god! I mean, comedy, you know? <laughs> yeah, I, it's it's just that that's that's such a dumb hack joke, to, you know? It's yeah. like, but also just like you know, he was, yeah, he he's. I mean, that's the thing. I see comedians who think that just being really annoying and obnoxious. I mean, I mean that is a thing. Like you know, um, and I can be really obnoxious too, but. Usually, I don't expect people to laugh. I just expect people to get the fuck out of my way because I'm on my way somewhere. Like, I'm, I'm late to meet Tony. Get the fuck out of my way. And, you know, so, but I don't, I don't, you know, pass a hat around. <laughs> I don't know. Um, and so, what are you working on now? I, did I see you're working on a Young Adult series? Is that, oh, really? Okay. Oh, boy. I want to hear about this. Yes. So, I don't know how much I can say about it. Basically, I... Um, have, have more coffee. We'll, we'll <laughs> so, basically, I am, uh, I'm writing a young adult trilogy uh, for the same publisher that did All the Birds in the Sky and The City in the Middle of the Night, Tor Books. And uh, basically, I just, you know, I, a couple, two, three years ago, I had this idea for this kind of space opera about this teenage girl who discovers that she's actually connected to this war that's going on in space and she's like actually you know this kind of long-lost hero kind of I don't know um, it's complicated and I came up with like really like the world building like I'm actually doing something that I've never done before which is making a wiki like you can you can make your own wiki like just like Wikipedia except it's it lives on my own website and right now it's password protected nobody can read it except for me and it's basically keeping track of like 20 different like alien species in the in the book in the, it's a trilogy you know this deep history of like what happened a thousand years ago what happened like a million years ago um, all this like really complicated stuff that by the way the book is not because I know that you're I can see that you're like having the thing of like I'm not a sci-fi expert and I'm gonna be able to read this it's it's not that kind of book it's definitely about teenagers who are real teenagers and like their lives and you know it's about kind of being a teenager and wanting to escape from being a teenager on earth and then getting to escape but it's not exactly what you thought it would be it's kind of that's kind of the same as what all the words of the sky was in a weird way but um it's it's very much about the teenagers and their relationships and their kind of like emotional stuff and then there's this backdrop of this grand epic space battle which if you don't care about the epic space battle stuff Hopefully, you'll just follow the characters, and you know that's where like 99.9% of the focus is going. But I have this whole complicated thing worked out, and I'm talking to science geeks about like the science, which is it's it's like Star Trek, so it's not it's not like Star Trek, but it's the same genre as Star Trek. So the science is going to be very like, woo, we can do stuff, you know. But there'll be like real science here and there too. And so when it comes, is it different for each book? Does it does it start with? Um with the world, or does it start with a character, or, and then you or you start the world, and then you put the character in a world? How how does it work for you on? 
Yeah, I mean, uh, every book is different. Um, like, All the Birds in the Sky kind of started with the characters. It was like, I want to have a mad scientist and a witch and have their relationship and have, you know, what happens between the two of them. And then, you know, it takes place in... <clears throat> It takes place in the sort of the quote-unquote real world, but um, I still had to come up with a lot of stuff to kind of flesh it out as like what magic is like and what, um, you know, what, what their lives are like and what, you know, all that stuff. And uh, with City in the Middle of the Night, it definitely started with the world. And I was like, okay, tidally locked planet. One side always faced like there's a permanent day side, permanent night side. Uh, what would it be like to live there? And it took couple of years before I had the characters. It took a long time to get the characters, which is weird. It was like intense and I was kind of freaking out about it. Um, and then this YA, once again, it's really, you know, it starts with this one character and her journey. And then I just got super excited to, you know, she meets aliens and I'm like, oh, well, who are these aliens? And I started thinking about that and getting excited and coming up with, and oh, and what happened with them? And what's the history of their planet? And like, what are their customs? And, you know, and then, before I know it, I have a wiki, so wow. that's exciting. Yeah, do you have to be somewhere at four? I have to be somewhere at four. All right, I'll Google just ask one more question, we'll wrap okay. up. Yeah, Google's saying it's a 17 minute drive, sometimes Lyft in it, right? No, exactly. Like, yeah, yeah. Like give give, give yourself some padding. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Whoa. Okay, okay. Uh, okay, we have one more question. Yeah. <laughs> Charlie. <laughs> um, all right. Oh, now I, now I have to do one more question, and now I'm totally on the spot. You only have one more question, Tony. What are you going to ask? Um, let's see. Uh, the last question is, um, what, uh, what, what, is a, what, is a, what is a ritual you do uh, that is kind of weird, uh, that, but it, it makes you feel comfortable? Uh, I mean, my ritual for writing is usually that I take a really long walk. And, you know, in San Francisco, I walk up and down the really the awesome steep hills and I uh, sit in a cafe where hopefully I don't know anybody and I just sit and type. And often when I'm taking my really long walk, I will kind of talk to myself about the story a little bit and like hope that people don't, you know, think that I'm, you know. You talk out loud. Sometimes, yeah. sometimes, yeah. I need to get a Bluetooth headpiece so that people think I'm talking to someone. I keep meaning to do that because like I will talk to myself about the story and I'll just like talk to myself and kind of get it out there and just like think about what I'm doing yeah. and like try to like just get the story to take shape in my head before I get to the cafe and then sit and just like type like a maniac until I keel over okay. and then um, cool Charlie it's been so great having you on the show thank you oh, thank you so much for having me this is awesome and I'm gonna go pee again but thank you <laughs> that was Charlie Jane Anders on drinks with Tony She's the author of The City in the Middle of the Night. Check that out now. Her other books include Choir Boy and All the Birds in the Sky. Remember to rate us on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you listen to this show. And check out TonyDuchesne.com for upcoming writing workshops. We have upcoming ones at Los Feliz Library on the UCLA campus and online. Yes, writing workshops, TonyDuchesne.com. They're lots of fun. And... um. Yeah, have a great week. I'll see you next Wednesday.